Well, good morning. Thank you so much for downloading the Faith Life Podcast of Discovery Fellowship Church. This is Pastor Nathan here, and this podcast today is our sermon podcast. So every week we go through after the sermon and post it here on our podcast feed so that in case you missed it, you can get all caught up. In addition, if you check the description for this podcast, you will see some discussion questions that you can use to take what you've learned from the sermon and put it into practice into your life. So don't forget to check that out. As always, if you'd like to get a hold of us, you can email podcast at dfchurch.com. And if you'd like to support the ministry of Discovery Fellowship Church, please visit dfchurch.com for more information. Now here's the sermon. That's getting us in the Christmas spirit, I should think. And you guys are looking pretty uh, festive out there as well. I hope that you're pretty much prepared for Christmas. Um, I think there's only about 14 shopping days left until the big event. Sorry to say that, but uh, out in the foyer, if you're interested, we have some invite cards out there. So if you have some family or friends or neighbors or coworkers that you've been praying for and you'd like to invite them to come, these invite cards are for Christmas Eve. It tells them um, that we're going to have a a candlelight Christmas Eve service. It's going to be at 4 o'clock in the evening this year, just one service. We've got two services in the morning, then one at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and then on the back side, uh, there's a little QR code there, and that will take you directly to my Christmas wish list uh, with various sizes and things that I'm really wanting, so be sure to scan that. Just kidding. We have been studying through the amazing book of Philippians, and we're getting close to the end of it. Our theme has been, together we're better, talking about what it means to have unity in the body of Christ, talking about what it means to really be standing firm in our faith in Jesus Christ. And so we'll continue in that vein this morning. So let's just submit ourselves to the Lord, to his spirit, ask him to lead us as we look at the word this morning. And so again, Lord, we do. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word and acknowledge our dependence, as always, on your spirit. I ask that you would instruct us and convince us and help us, Lord, to become more like you as a result of knowing your heart and your word. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. The scripture says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute. If there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, 
dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. In verse 1 of this chapter, the Apostle Paul writes to the Philippians uh, and to us, and he says, um, therefore in this way stand firm in the Lord. And over these past couple of weeks as we've been studying uh, this book together, and in particular this passage, we've noted here in our study that the Apostle Paul gives four ways that you and I are to, as he says, stand firm in the Lord. Four things that if we'll pay attention and uh, actually follow through and do them, will in fact help us to be standing firm together, not only as a local church body gathered, but also to have a firm foundation for our own individual, personal, spiritual lives. Let me remind you of them again quickly this morning. In verses 2 and 3, Paul uses a particular interpersonal conflict situation that was going on in the church at Philippi to make the point that we have to have harmony in our relationships with one another in the body of Christ. In other words, uh, do not tolerate offenses. Do not cause offenses. Do not perpetuate offenses. And do not take up offenses for others. And if there is an offense, inasmuch as it depends on you, get that resolved. And if you cannot get it resolved, then get somebody else who's mature in the body involved to help get it resolved. So... Number one, live in harmony with each other. It's just not an option. Number two is found in verses four and five. In those verses, Paul reminds us that we are to have hearts that are to be focused upward, uh, vertically, in praise and rejoicing. And that again, when it comes to our various horizontal relationships that we have, we need to forbear with one another. Rejoice in the Lord and forbear with one another. In other words, recognize what God has done for you and is doing in you and then give grace and give forbearance to others as God has given it to you. In the book of Romans, as you can see from that passage on the big screen, he puts it that way in chapter 12, verse 3. I say to every one of you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think or she ought to think. So... When you are irritated, when you are aggravated and flustrated with other Christ followers that we have in our lives, we are probably thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to. So, don't do that. That's not an option. Last week, we took a few minutes to consider point number three from the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul. It was found in verses six and seven. Command number three is how to stand firm as a Christ follower. And we could put it this way. Don't worry, pray happy. The Holy Spirit says stop being anxious. Stop worrying and focus your concerns towards God with a spirit of thanksgiving that God is engaged in your life. And God says that if we'll do that, You can experience peace in the midst of circumstances that you really don't understand or comprehend and can't figure out on your own. 
And if you have the peace of God watching over your heart and mind, you're in good hands. That's God's policy. So don't worry. That's not an option. Pray instead with thanksgiving. So that brings us this morning to command number four. And you find it, as we read just a moment ago, in verses 8 and 9, and that is focus on excellence. Let's look at the text once again. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. In these verses, the Apostle Paul tells us that we are to concentrate on excellence. And notice how we're to do that. Two ways. Number one, with our minds. And number two, with our models. Your mind, in verse 8, and your models, in verse 9. You know, your mind is an amazing thing. About three pounds of gray matter, billions and billions of cells that virtually instantaneously receive and store and process and retransmit an incomprehensible number of transactions in just a millisecond. Your mind is the most precious resource physiologically that you have. Over the span of about 70 years, it will store more than 15 trillion bits of information. And what Paul is reminding us here is that we control the gateway to our minds. And what he's wanting us to think about is, what is it that you allow into that priceless resource, this supercomputer that you carry around inside your skull? What do you let in? I think if Paul were here today, he would ask the follow-on questions to verse 8, and he would be asking something like, what are you reading? What are you listening to? What are you looking at? What are you giving your mind to? Is it excellence, or is it garbage, or is it a mixed bag? Junior hires and high schoolers and college kids and adults, when it comes to the media that you submit yourself to in the world, what do you let in that gate? I think we give ourselves permission too oftentimes to allow into our eye gates and into our ear gates music or movies or TikTok or literature that is laced with profanity and sexual innuendo or sexual situations or stuff sometimes that's just flat out blasphemy. And either sometimes we have allowed ourselves to get so inoculated to the filth and the worthlessness that we don't even recognize it. Or else we say to ourselves, you know, afterwards, well, it really it wasn't really all that bad. You've probably heard me share this illustration before because I've used it so many times. But as my kids were growing up, when they were teenagers, I can well remember I had read about a fellow who tried this 
He said that his teenage kids came to him one morning and they said, Dad, we'd like to go to a movie tonight. And the dad said, well, tell me about the movie. And they said, well, it's R-rated, but it's really not that bad. Well, what's in it, he said. Well, they said there's probably some profanity and there might be some sexual stuff in there. But again, it's just not that bad. And so the dad said, well, let me think a little bit about that. When you come home from school today, we can kind of make a decision. And so off they went to school. They got back that afternoon. And he said, let's talk a little bit, guys, about this movie. Um, but as we do that, I want you to just sit down, have a glass of milk, and I've made some special brownies for you. And so he put the brownies on the table. And they said, well, Dad, what's so special about these brownies? And he said, well, while you were off at school, I went in the backyard, and I picked up a little bit of dog poop, and I mixed it in with the batter. Not a lot. It's not that bad. It's just a little. The kids didn't really want to eat it for some reason. If you and I are not very careful, we can easily, I think, become desensitized to evil and even be willing to eat a little dog poop. In this passage, Paul says, let your mind dwell on what is right and truthful. So we need to think about what is true because God defines for us what truth is. But beyond that, notice that he also employs some adjectives here that have to do with moral excellence. That which is lovely, he says. That which is honorable. That which is of good report. That which is excellent and praiseworthy. What he's teaching us here is that there is a clear distinction between the things that are true and things that are excellent and stuff that just is not. And you and I need to be discriminating and discerning and frankly uncompromising in our selection because once you get it into your head, it's there for good or for evil. And the truth is that you and I are increasingly living in a day when we are not willing to shut the thing off when it's not really honorable. Paul is telling the Philippians in this passage and he's, he's telling us today, hey, the people you know, that are in the world out there, they fuss and, and they fight with one another, and they don't get along. They're ungrateful, and they're self-centered. They worry about stuff that they can't control. They don't acknowledge God. They don't depend on Him. They scheme and they manipulate. They don't really have any transcendent peace in their lives, and they'll allow just about any old garbage and dog poop into their heads. But you, Paul says, you're different, and so you must reconcile with one another. You forbear, and you treat others with respect, and you don't fret and worry, and you take your stuff to your heavenly Father with thanksgiving. You don't let sewage into your head. You focus on the right stuff, on good things. Don't you? Or have we settled for mediocrity in our relationships with one another and how we treat each other in regards to our cares and concerns in this life that we are tempted to worry about and to the stuff we allow to come into our heads or allow ourselves to see 
And then the Apostle Paul makes a second point in this section in verse 9. First of all, excellence in terms of what gets into your mind, and then secondly, excellence in terms of the models that you follow. This is a verse that we don't often spend very much time on, maybe because perhaps it doesn't seem like it's all that practical. But listen again to what he says. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Now Paul is not boasting here. He's just saying that, look, the Lord has produced in my life the kind of lifestyle that is worthy of being emulated and modeled. He says, the stuff you've seen me do in terms of how I choose to live for Jesus, the stuff I've taught you, the way that you see me interact with others, do that. Every generation needs good, faithful, strong models. And I suspect that we live in a generation today that they are scarcer than they have ever been. The people that we hold up as role models, you know, the musicians, the celebrities, the actors and actresses, the politicians, the late night TV hosts and entertainers, the professional athletes. It seems like just about every week you can read headlines of some famous person who has gotten caught in lies and deceit or tax evasion or unfaithfulness and self-indulgence. And interestingly, on the one hand, the news media wants to expose that hypocrisy and that false image and that lie. But almost in the same breath, they want to say, but we need to respect their privacy. Who are we to judge another person's moralities? The world's heroes are the same people who can't control themselves morally. They can hit the home run. Uh, they can bring an audience to its feet with a standing ovation. Uh, they can shoot a, a 64 over 18 holes, or they can perform brilliantly and win themselves an Oscar, but they couldn't really care less about personal integrity, or oftentimes honoring commitments, or living a life that is in submission to God's standards, or, or excellence. Paul is intimating here that models are powerful. Paul says, what you've seen in me, practice this. Live like this. And notice he says, if you'll do this, if you'll, if you'll be reconciled with one another, if you forbear with one another, if you pray in trust and thanksgiving, instead of wringing your hands in worry and anxiety, and if you focus on that which is excellent in your life as opposed to what really isn't, then the end of verse 9 says, the God of peace will be with you. There's that peace thing again. It's Irene in Greek, it's Shalom in Hebrew. God will bring peace, settled confidence, reassurance, faith, balance, harmony into your standing firm kind of a life. I'd like to just kind of wrap it up for this morning with an illustration. It's about prayer. It's about persistence in faith. It's about standing firm in the cause of the gospel. It's about focusing on the right things. In the very late 1800s, uh, Dwight Lyman Moody, D.L. Moody, the founder of the Moody Bible Institute, tremendous 
evangelists in the Chicago area and in fact all over the country, even worldwide. In the late 1800s, D.L. Moody made a short trip over to England. Uh, he just needed to get away from the pressures of ministry. He just needed to get some rest from all the things ministry related that he had given himself to. And while he was over there in England, he had decided and determined that he wasn't going to do any ministry, just rest, recuperate, recharge, and just get away. But when he got to London, one of the congregational ministers of one of the large churches there in London heard that he was in town. And he asked the famous Mr. Moody if he would come and preach at the morning and at the evening services at his church. Moody reluctantly consented to do that. And when he came, and when he preached at the morning service, he said, he remarked to an associate, it was about as flat as a pancake. He said that the service was mostly marked by a smug complacency among the people that were there, a general lack of enthusiasm, no sense really of the Holy Spirit in the worship service. People had just kind of made their way through the, through the hymns and, you know, sort of perfunctorily sang, uh, you know, the various songs. He had gotten up to preach to a packed house, more than a thousand people. But it was one of those experiences for a communicator that was a tremendous disappointment. He remembers that after the service, remarking to a friend how he wished that he had never accepted that invitation to speak. And he felt like it was a mistake to even have gone there. But he had made the commitment, and so he came back for the evening service, and he preached. And that evening, he preached an evangelistic message, one that centered on Jesus Christ, focused on the good news of the gospel. At the end of his message, he almost reluctantly asked those who were present who would like to receive Jesus Christ as their personal Savior to stand, to just rise right where they were. And to his utter amazement, more than 400 people stood up, almost half of the congregation. And Moody was surprised. He was dumbfounded. And thinking that they must have misunderstood him, he asked them all to sit back down. And then he re-explained to them what he was asking for. And then he issued the invitation once again, and even more people stood up than the original 400. And he was shocked. They all came down to the front of the sanctuary, got on their knees, trusted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Over 400 were added to the kingdom that night. And Moody was incredulous. He didn't understand what had happened, and so he began to make some inquiries. And over the next couple of days, he was able to find out that there was a bedridden, handicapped, terminally ill young teenage girl in the congregation named Mary Ann Adlerid. And she had read in the newspapers about D.L. Moody's work in Chicago months before. And she had begun praying that God would send Mr. Moody to come and preach at her church. Her older sister had been present in the morning worship service and had come home after that lifeless time of worship and told Mary Ann about that, that a man named Moody from Chicago, Illinois, uh, in the United States had come and had preached in their church. 
The bedridden girl asked not to be disturbed that entire afternoon so that she might give the entire afternoon to unhindered, uninterrupted prayer for revival. And as she prayed, she said that the assurance of God filled her heart that God was going to do something extraordinary. And we know the rest of the story. Once D.L. Moody learned about her, he paid her a visit in her home, and she asked him to write his name in her birthday book, and she promised that she would pray for him every day as long as God gave her breath. Now, as I encounter true stories like that, I think to myself whether that kind of story touches on the issue of prayer or whether it touches on the issue of, of uh, whether there are the right priorities or some other spiritual priority in my own life. But regardless, I come basically to the same bottom line. It's the bottom line that we, that I, as followers of Jesus Christ, have oftentimes, I think, settled for just too little. We have settled or maybe we've even fallen in love with mediocrity because it requires almost nothing, but occasionally showing up somewhere and going through the motions. And here you have a young lady unable to get out of her bed, and yet she was unwilling to stop praying and wrestling with God until God did something. The Philippian church had settled for too little. They had rather fuss and fight with each other than live in harmony. They had rather hold grudges and, and, you know, than, than to, to uh, forbear with EGR kinds of people. They had rather worry and fret and be faithless than pray with thanksgiving. They had rather be exposed to the mixed bag of the world in which they lived and swim with the tide of the cultural sewage than focus in their lives on moral excellence. That was Philippi. This is now. What will we do with the truth? Father, thank you for uh, this time this morning again to consider uh, your truth, your words, your exhortations to us. Lord, I pray that we would be people of conviction and action and follow through with the things that your spirit has shown us. In Jesus' name, amen. 